Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right. Hello. Welcome. It's the end of the week. It's the news. I'm very excited. Not that it's the end of the week, although it's been, you know, as they all are, kind of an exhausting week, but a fun week. And we're going to end it in a fun way with a great panel here. Uh, joining us in the studio is Rebecca Castellani, Entertainment Director at Bridge Street Live in Canton, Connecticut, the very lively uh, entertainment district of Collinsville, actually. Uh, and, and her mom's here today. She's not going to be on the show unless we need her. We have mom. We tap her She's in. in the green room. If we have an emergency, <laughs> we can get her. Um, Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman is director of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture graduate program at Sacred Heart University. Um, we've got some topics to talk about. Um, and, and, well, what we did was uh, we all watched Gerald's Gate, which is a uh, Stephen King adaptation. Uh, which is running right now on Netflix. That'll be part of the conversation that we have in the second half of the show. Um, but um, before that, anyway, we're going to talk about, actually, it's sort of right up Bill Usman's uh, uh, alley in the sense that it, it, we're going to be talking about a kind of media literacy. But let me kind of set this up. So almost everybody, I think, has had an experience. Rebecca was just talking to us about one. Uh, but we've all had this experience of running into people that we know and like and may have some kind of nice connection to and who seem like good people. Um, and, and, but they have, they have read and believed incredibly weird things. Um, a friend of mine patronizes um, a lovely uh, nursery, like plant nursery in Massachusetts and where the couple seems very nice uh, until one day they started talking about this um, fact that, uh, the, that Barack and Michelle Obama had gotten, I believe, Michelle's mother this incredibly – lucrative job on the White House payroll and that was and, and it was one of these things where you could look it up in about 10 minutes you could or no five minutes you could very easily show that it wasn't true but the world is now full of people who believe stuff like this and obviously our election was conditioned by you know thousands of people who read articles on Facebook that said that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump or that Hillary Clinton was involved in a Pizzagate sex ring and it's all this kind of stuff and if it's placed the right way and it's presented the right way people believe it it changes changes the way they process reality and how they act. So what do you do about it? Um, well, there's been a couple of things this week that uh, have intrigued me. One of them is, uh, you may have seen this article, it was page one of the New York Times yesterday. Um, the idea uh, is in Italy uh, that uh, they are trying to teach uh, as part of public education. They're trying to, in the words of the New York Times, train a generation of students steeped in social media how to recognize fake news and conspiracy theories online. Quote, fake news drips drops of poison into our daily web diet and we end up infected without realizing it, said Laura Boldrini, the president uh, of the lower house of parliament. It's only right to give these kids the possibility to defend themselves from lies, uh, said uh, Mrs. Boldrini. This initiative will be rolled out in 8,000 high schools across the country starting on October 31st. I'll talk about another idea that was floated in Foreign Policy magazine in just a second. But um, uh, Bill, since this is right there in your job title, uh, we may as well start with you. That I think one of the, the default position of the media, people like me, is we have to fix this. We have to fix like what the media is. But the truth is fixing it on our source end may not 
really do that much and it may not be that possible. This idea of fixing it on the user end is a little new to me, but maybe not to you. Yeah, there have been calls for media literacy for a very long time, really, um, probably starting with the introduction of television and calls for, you know, what that at the time was referred to as teleliteracy. You know, let's figure out how we can become literate about television content. So that's been going on for a very long time. And we should also kind of point out that fake news has been going around on for a very long time. It's, it's, it's really not a new invention. What's new is the technologies. What's new is the ability for anyone really to be able to create and disseminate the most ridiculous nonsense in this really, really powerful way without needing to be a media professional. So to a certain extent, I would agree with you, Colin, that it's really going to be impossible to fix this from the source point of view because we are all the media now. There isn't any longer just the media, which are these institutions outside of ourselves. We all are the media. We all are creating media. And there's no way that every single person who has the ability to do that is going to do it in an ethical and responsible way. So we do need to learn how to swim in that new environment. And I do think that that requires media literacy and it requires media literacy in a very extensive, well-distributed, well-funded and um, you know, powerful kind of way, which Europe has been ahead of the United States in terms of this for quite a long time. I think, I think it's kind of funny though that um, you know, it, uh, it, this is like we think of this as something new to teach media literacy because haven't we been teaching people to, you know, be skeptical of sources ever since we've been teaching people, you know? And so I sort of feel like is it because Europeans are better educated that they, you know, quote unquote, whatever that means, that they're more willing to, to sort of point to media literacy as a problem? I don't know. But I sort of feel like that's what I've been teaching, you know, for 30 years or however long I've been teaching. And that is sort of the point of education is a critical mind that that is skeptical of sources and is willing to say, wait a minute, you know, okay, you're saying this, but but what are your sources? I mean, we supposedly have been teaching that ever since as long as we've been teaching anything. And so it's interesting to, is is there something about media literacy that's different from regular literacy? But I also, I, I also feel like, oh. I want to get to Rebecca in just a second, but there's sort of a physician heal thyself thing that I've been thinking about a lot. This week we've done a lot of shows kind of by accident that touch on this topic and yesterday full-length show with Kurt Anderson where we talked a, a lot about it. I bet you I could go on the campus of Trinity and find professors and certainly students who have all kinds of really wacky ideas about genetically modified food and how it's absolutely a must that you have to avoid it. It's so dangerous, genetically modified food. And Mo vaccines. Yeah. Well, we, we could come to that. I'm, I'm, I'm on the safer of these two squares right <laughs> Sorry. now. Sorry. You, yeah. you know, and most of that is based on nothing. Most of it doesn't show hold up to rigorous analysis. I mean, I actually think all of us have heads full of claptrap. Um, 
Yeah. Is that the fault? Is that because we don't, you know, I, I, well, I was thinking about that too. I was thinking that if somebody told me something about something that I believed in, that was a, that was fake news, I would be probably be much more likely to say, oh my gosh, that's, that must be true. That's amazing. Like genetically modified food, for example, you know, I probably wouldn't if somebody said, you know, that corn that you're eating is really messed up because it has all this, these pesticides, I would probably believe it. I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, I have to go check my source and make sure that's true. You know, so I, I guess it's true that people want to believe it's already people have a mindset that they want to believe something. And then and then they, and then they sort of they're less skeptical right. about information. Well, I mean, Rebecca, there's so many ways to go about this. But since you are since we're going to break the other glass and get our millennial uh, out of the diorama. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. Do you feel so Bill's saying and I think he's right that the digital quality part of this is one of the things that it's make, makes it more pernicious. And certainly, if I'm a smart digital user and I want to spread lies about something, you know, all I have to get is do is get the right story. Maybe targeted using analytics in front of 150,000 people. Maybe I can charge change 70,000 votes. I can win a presidential election that way. But I'm also wondering whether you feel like you've got a different set of goggles on as a millennial. Maybe you can. You're a little bit more used to the idea that digital is often manipulated manipulating. Yeah, no, I, I certainly treat everything that I see that's, you know, purely digital content. I, I think that journalism used to be this this sacred cow, and now this idea that clickbait and raw hits is more important than the sanctity of what you're producing. I mean, I, I tie that all into this whole idea of things going viral. I mean, you weed through all these videos of things that somebody said, oh, my mom found a coyote and brought it in, and it, somebody's dog. I mean, it takes so much effort to parse through what's real and what's not that I tend to just sort of say, take it all at face value and say, that's a funny video, that's a funny meme. Who knows how accurate it is? So it's made oh, no. me very skeptical <laughs> of the validity of a lot of the stuff that's being presented to me. I mean, you, I do find that even something as innocuous as a, a Slate article or a, a you know Vice article or something like that, you really do have to dig a little further and be a conscious consumer of media. And I, I think that is a fairly new phenomenon because before we kind of accepted a lot of this stuff at face value. And now we have this whole keyboard warrior fact checking thing, which is great in some senses, but to me, I think we are putting more emphasis on the reach than we are on the quality. You know, it's, it's quantity over quality of, of what you're consuming, and it's hard to police that. So, you, again, it, it all comes back to conscious consumerism. Well, Bill, it's also kind of a philosophical problem here, too. I mean, there's a bunch of them, but uh, I want to mention Cicela Bach for the second time in two days. But, I mean, her, her book, Lying, which she published in 1978, a philosophical treatise on, on lying, one of the things she says, she, describing the environment that Rebecca now lives in, she describes it as a hypothetically impossible environment. If, in fact, you feel as though you're being lied to most of the time or you might be, be – and you have to check everything – I mean, you can't function in an environment like that. I mean, if every statement that you got requires some kind of rigorous investigation on your own part, you can't yeah. live. Well, then what is journalism then at that point? You right. know, it, it changes the whole nature of the construct. Yeah. And so there is that trap. There, There's that nihilistic, cynical rather than skeptical tra trap that a lot, I hear from a lot of my students. Like, I don't trust anything. Nothing is true. And so I'm just going to kind of give up. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and, and to be honest with you, I think that plays perfectly into the designs 
of powerful forces. I, I don't think it's accidental that the Trump administration rolls out the term fake news anytime that there's something that is critical of them or something that they don't like, you know, because it's, it's an inoculation. Um, it means that nothing can be trusted except the voice of the dear leader. And then you're just kind of giving up and, you know, let's party like it's 1999 because there's nothing that we can do about this. And, and we, there has to be a way to work around that cynical, nihilistic trap that this can create. I mean, I, I feel like one way to work around it is really to publicize, you know, like the New York Times is a very different source from, an, from a random Internet source. And people don't even understand what that means and why the New York Times is so different, you know. And, and I guess that is part of the, of, you know, Trump's ideas to try to like sort of paint them all with the same brush, you know. But so I, I would say maybe one step is to is to publicize more what it really means to be a journalist, you know, mm-hmm. like what how you check your sources how those sources get checked, how those sources get rechecked, where the, you know, the attempt to, to, I mean, does that affect you as a millennial to know that? Yes, but the problem with the New York Times is it's not readily accessible. You have a certain number of articles you can read per month and then you have to pay for it. So, you know, there is that distance where it's hard, you know, busy taking in content and someone's got, you know, five minutes on their commute to read something. Are they going to sign up for a New York Times subscription because they want the highest quality journalism? In my experience with millennials, no. There's also somebody named Sarita is tweeting us about a bunch of things, uh, including the business of media has degraded the craft of journalism. Can't uh, argue with that. People have to be willing to pay for content. Quote, uh, uh, excuse me, all caps. You get what you pay for. Um, and so, I mean, that sort of addresses yeah. what you're saying. Too. Yeah, yeah. And which I agree. I mean, like anything, you, it's quality over quantity, and you got to expend money to get quality news. I guess in this case, but for a lot of people, that's either not financially feasible, or they don't care enough to take that extra step and put their credit card information so they can have unlimited New York Times access. It's it's a tricky, and I and I do think the New York Times is one of the few, you know, the last strongholds of good clean media that you know publishes retractions and edits and takes ownership for, you know, the few instances where they do do misprints and stuff like that, whereas you don't see that with smaller publications that are more viral, like, you know, your dime a dozen think pieces that show up on your newsfeed. But there is also the problem that we can't just put our faith in the big media institutions. Because if you look at the New York Times, for example, yes, there's a difference between the New York Times and some, you know, random blogger who's just kind of making stuff up. But if you look at the New York Times during the run-up to the Iraq War and the way Dick Cheney had access to reporters and was planting stories and then citing them on the morning news shows and Judith Miller was just accepting anything that was coming out of the White House. And it was appearing on the front page of the New York Times. That was also fake news, but we didn't think of it as fake news at the time, and it helped to lead us into the war. Yeah, but we we learned something from that. And I think the New York Times learned something from that, right? So in a way, it's an exception that proves a rule, right? Because maybe it won't. Ha- I mean, because there is sort of a yeah, it, it it's true that sometimes it doesn't work, but still, at least it. But I, I could give you some post-war post, exi- post 
Judith Miller examples of the New York Times not having learned that lesson too. I mean I could give you chapter and verse on them and, and stuff that they've just never dealt with. Yes. Um, and, and, and certainly – No, I want to believe in a big institution. <laughs> sorry. I mean I'm it looks – it's a great institution. Yeah. By and large a great institution. It's not, as Bill is saying, it's not an infallible institution. Right. Um, and I mean you know everybody knows that uh, John Kerry said who among us does not love NASCAR. Except Maureen Dowd made that up, all right? He never said that, all right? So – and there are – I mean I could go on. Um, but but the I think the other problem is – OK. The other aspect of this is the digital revolution that started somewhere around 2000, between 2000 and 2004 was fueled as Bill is suggesting at least by the belief of some bloggers who were starting some of the news blogs that became very, very popular, the kind of Daily Coast level blogs. One of the things that they would say to people like me and I had this directly in my face is, you know what the difference between you and me is? You get a paycheck. That is the absolutely the only difference. You've got no training. They're right. Uh, you have no certification. You know, like, oh, There's things you have to know to be a plumber. You can't be a plumber if you don't pass certain things. If you have a license. I don't have any license. I don't have any training. They're absolutely right. And, and I, I, one of the things they said is, so what's so great about you? You guys make mistakes. You miss stories. You overemphasize certain things. You work in packs. You, you know, f chase around one thing and ignore another thing. Why aren't we every bit as good? And I'm not sure that journalism has come up with a really good answer to that yet, except vetting, right? Vetting, like you know, vetting is a big answer. Yeah. Having an editor, right? That helps. Um. <laughs> I didn't mean to stall the conversation there. Well, so, okay, one of the other things that was proposed in, in, uh, by foreign policy is the kind of consumer's union model that somehow or other there would be some kind of citizen's movement that would then come to resemble the consumer's union, which then turned, in, turned out consumer reports, that somehow or other would work that way for information. And Irene, I mean, one problem I have, question I have about it, we live in a time where basically the response is to discredit whatever. So in other words, if you have a fact-checking organization working out of the Pointer Institute or the Annenberg Center or the Washington Post, the people who don't like the fact-checking say, oh, well, you're just big part of the big eastern elite lying apparatus anyway. So who cares if you fact-checked it? And I would say that's that's the propaganda right there to say that. But I also think, all right, so another rule of thumb should be that you always do what I'm sure all of us do, which is if you see a story you, you want to look at, that, that you have any kind of skepticism about, you want to say, okay, what's everybody else saying about it? You know, and so the more and that if that's what they do, I mean, I trust them. I mean, you know, I trust those kind of organizations, but maybe that's just because I'm not a millennial and you know it's I think it's true that that it's millennials tend to be more skeptical on the whole um, but I, I I think if people are trained and rigorous in their approach and they're going to pu publish retractions and they're going to try to get to the truth that makes a big difference absolutely I mean I thought Bill's point about skepticism versus cynicism was right on I mean I don't necessarily feel that I'm as skeptical as I am I throw my hands up in the air exasperated and saying I don't know what's real and what's not and the effort required to investigate I just don't have enough hours in the day to investigate every single article for validity and that's frustrating uh, I'm being texts uh, or something. A lawmaker in the vice president's home state of Indiana has drafted a bill that would require state police to issue licenses to professional journalists. <laughs> I assume this is different from press cards, which state police often do. Well, I mean, Bill, this is one of the things that 
I think you and I both teach some of the same stuff when, when I do teach. And one thing I say to my students is, okay, so when you buy a car, you try to know everything about the car you know, before you buy the car. When you drive across a bridge, you don't research the bridge. You just assume it's going to work. And that unfortunately, information is getting a lot more like cars. Like you almost really do have to ask a lot of those questions uh, about it. But we treat information, not unreasonably, like a bridge that we can just drive across. But I don't know. Then you had, I guess the next thing you have to do is teach that generation of students uh, how to scale that somehow because, as we said, you can't check everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that's, 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 that's why it can be exhausting and that uh, you know, institutions count on that exhaustion on the part of the public because you buy a new car every several years at the most – and you know you're taking in new information multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. Now you know constantly we're 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 never kind of disconnected from the media information environment. And so you, as you said earlier, you, you can't fact check every single source. You can't decide I'm not going to listen to this or I'm not going to accept these these findings until I've you know spent a half hour researching it that's that's just impossible and it becomes exhausting so it has to become a matter of teaching really kind of ingrained habits of critical thinking uh, so that we develop kind of a sense of okay, there's something in here that just doesn't seem right to me. This is something that I need to follow up on. Who was the source of this story? Where did it come from? What is the motivation behind it? But it does have to become kind of an innate thing so that when I sit down to read, I don't have to consciously think about how to read the words on the page the way I did when I was first being taught to read. And so we have to be able to get to that point where that's true of us for all of our media consumption, that it's ingrained in us, that it, that it becomes something that has become almost natural for us as we're reading, to be critically reading, as we're watching, to be critically watching. One thing, we're going to take a break here. One last thought I would leave people with is, you know, it may be important to sometimes maybe to disconnect from certain things. Uh, this is something Virginia Heffernan, a media critic, has been talking about. She calls it cognitive security. And basically the argument is, you know, if your faucet were connected to a toxic, polluted aquifer, you'd disconnect from it, you know. And, and you may have the equivalent of that coming into your phone right now. Uh, and it may, you may ultimately have to disconnect from some of the polluted information sources uh, that you're getting. But uh, it's going it's to be a hard sell for a lot of people. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. Jonathan McNichol is going to come in here and handcuff all of the panelists <laughs> to the desks. Uh, and we'll explain why when we come back. I got Kellyanne Conway to spin my facts for me. You got number cruncher. All right. Poor uh, Jesse. Uh, her marriage to a somewhat uh, creepy older husband with kind of scary looking eyes, uh, played by Bruce Greenwood, who didn't need any makeup for that, um, is a little flat and stale in the sex department. Uh, he sets up a uh, exciting weekend for them at a lake house. Uh, this is going to involve I'm, – I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm going to spoil the first three minutes of this thing for you. But I mean really it's not going to spoil anything. Um, but it will spoil the first three minutes. Uh, this 
involves uh, handcuffing her to a bed, which he's going to find very exciting. The problem is he almost immediately <laughs> clutches his chest and has a heart attack and falls off the bed and just things really kind of go downhill from there, believe it or not. Uh, there are a lot of other problems. I mean, starting with the fact she can't get out of the handcuffs and she's miles from the nearest neighbor. And what is she going to do? Uh, this is the plot of Gerald's Game. It's a Stephen King adaptation. It's on Netflix right now. We can laugh and chuckle about it now, but we actually did have to watch it and it was quite <laughs> well. Some of us watched all of it. I'm going to say that for the first time in my career as a nose host, I, I kind of fast forwarded around and stuff. I thought I don't have to watch this whole thing. But um, but Irene, you watched the whole thing, so we'll, we'll start with you. So this is to a certain degree, I, like I don't know how we talk about this part of it without a little bit of spoiling, but this is a story, a little bit anyway, about how a woman tries to find her way out of a really impossible situation. I, I don't know. It, I'll just get your reaction to it. Is, are, you seem to find some redeeming things in this story. Um, sort of, yeah. I mean, because I, I actually, so I thought the opening scene, yeah, was very, was sort of intriguing. Like, I want to find out what's going on in their relationship, you know, before, before he, you know, he had to, he, he died right away. But, you know, sort, sort of like there was a problem in their relationship that they wanted to solve. He thought he could solve it by handcuffing her to the bed. So it's like, okay, yeah, I want to hear what's going to happen now, you know, like, and she's very resistant, you know, she, she, she sort of wanted to play along at first, but then she really had some trouble with it. And this all is all in the first half, first minute or two. And I feel like, all right, I want to watch the rest of that. And, you know, so I didn't get any satisfaction. And so I kept thinking um, about, I think it was trying to sort of analyze her and what her, what her problems were, you know, on some level it was trying to, but it was very much from a male point of view of like, what was wrong with her? Why couldn't she just go with it? Why, why was she so resistant, you know? And um, there could have been some, some interesting answers to that, but the answer, and so I was sort of waiting for, and then it was trying to have like a psychological, psychoanalytic drama of sorts that where they were trying to figure out. So, so that, that sort of pulled me along and sort of the horror stuff, I kind of like, like yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Let's get, to the, let's get to, the, to the psychology. So I don't think I'm the ideal viewer for it, but I think it was giving me enough that I could sort of say, oh, wow, what's going to happen? How are they going to analyze it? But ultimately, I was somewhat disappointed. All right. Before we get to Bill and Rebecca, let's hear a little clip here. Uh, some of the answers that uh, Irene is talking about come from these phantasms that are, uh, appear, to be, appear to be just projections uh, from, uh, from Jesse's uh, interior life. Uh, some of them are kind of an alternative version of herself. But some of them, because they didn't pay Bruce Greenwood to just drop dead in the first three minutes, uh, are her dead husband uh, now talking to her. So let's hear uh, that very censorious dead husband talking to Jesse, who we would like to emphasize is still handcuffed at this point. You're a life support system. You've been unplugged. There's still juice in there, but the charge is running down. And if you don't get out of the cuffs, it will go all the way to zero. When did we get here? One-ish, I think. And how long do we got into bed? An hour, maybe more. We call it two o'clock then, and I drop dead. Uh, ten minutes, maybe after. When's the sun been setting? Seven, fifteen or so. Oh, that's pretty close. That's another fifteen, twenty tops. So let's say five hours so far. Five hours you've wasted screaming for neighbors that are half a mile away if they're mm -hmm. even here yet. yet. And you know. If you really think about it, Nate and Kelly said they, they wouldn't be heading up there till June this year. And the maids came to prep for us yesterday because the bed is made and the house is dusted, which means they're done and gone. And the grass was cut fresh, which means no gardeners. Because I arranged it all to get the place ready for us today. 
And I wouldn't want them interrupting my little game, so I probably gave them at least a weekend off. <laughs> Who could possibly hear you screaming except Cujo over there? All right, so there's the dog, too. We can't tell you too much about the dog. You can find out about the dog on your own, okay? Um, but, um, but Bill, so, I, I mean, if there's a way to sort of look at this thing, it's a, it is kind of a, uh, a weird form of psychoanalysis in which Jesse really kind of takes stock of who she really is, how she got into this situation, what some of the factors in her early life would have been, because, in fact, there's another phantasm who will show up eventually. Um, and... and uh, from a certain point of view, I mean, an awful lot of fiction is that sort of quest for who I am. I don't know. Did it work for you that way? Uh, it didn't work for me very much at all. <laughs> and it's actually really good that we're talking about it today because if we hadn't ended up talking about it, I would have been really angry that you made me watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very biased against it. I, I, I did not think it was a good film. I did not think it was a story that held up. You know, I think the thing about, for for me, about Stephen King, and I do like some of Stephen King's work, um, I think The Shining is a great story, both in as a novel and, of course, it was made by one of my favorite filmmakers as a film. Um, but he's so ridiculously prolific that some of it is going to end up just being product. And this felt to me very much like product that was trying trying very hard to make some kind of profound statement, but was doing it in such a uh, text rather than subtext kind of way and doing it so heavily heavily handed that it it just never connected for me. You know, I I think underneath a lot of King's work is is this theme that the real horror, the real monsters, are from our dysfunctional relationships with real people. They they are the, the 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 real people in our lives are the ones that actually terrorize us. And I do think that that's kind of an interesting theme in his work, but in this one it was just so heavy-handed. I mean, at one point that actually became text. Like she actually says this mm-hmm. um, at the end <laughs> of the film and it's like, "Okay, thanks for thanks for telling us that that's what this is about as if we couldn't figure it out on our own." Also, we have eight seasons of The Walking Dead or however to tell us that the zombies become background noise pretty fast. Right. It's the living people who are a problem. Um Rebecca, you, did you read this book? I did. I read it this week. Um, so it's very fresh in my mind. Um, I always like to do that. And the entire time I was reading it, I kept thinking, how in God's name are they going to make this into a movie? Because they played up the psychoanalytic elements of it way more. There's five or six voices that she's dealing with as opposed to compartmentalizing it into an idealized version of herself and her husband, which is what you see in the film. I understand from an editing and a production standpoint why they made that choice. But you lose a lot of the impact that the novel has because it is so derivative in the way the movie has filmed it. Whereas when I was reading it, the handcuffing and all of that, you know, the trauma that she was going through was really secondary towards the work she was doing with these voices and the voices then start working together and some of the voices try and lead her astray. And that to me was what the novel really was about and her having to uncover past trauma to find clues in her past trauma to get out of the situation she was in. And the way the movie handled it was making it very much more about the bodily struggle she was going through. And they kind of played up that metaphor of, okay, here's a woman, a trapped woman who's got to escape. That was less emphasized in the novel. The ending, I will say, of both the novel and the movie is silly. 
and the, the novel ending was silly, but I, I do think the book is much more successful than the film. Did you feel like the novel um, sort of um, satisfied you to some extent in terms of her sexuality or her yes. psycho? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I thought that that was handled, you know, because it's sexuality is such a nuanced, complicated thing, especially yeah. for someone she's, you know, suffered some abuse. And I felt that they kind of, you know, the husband was in the film much more diabolically illustrated his his role as a voice because he wasn't one of the voices in the book gave him and obviously it's because oh, they have Bruce wow. Greenwood cast yeah. and he's fabulous I mean I thought in general the casting Carla Gugino was wonderful She's really good. Yeah. I, I thought that the acting was actually pretty great but they did the best they could with what was really just a reduction of the premise of the book mm. which was very successful so that would be my advice read the book don't don't bother seeing it. So yeah. let me swing this in a different direction. So, Bill, one of the things that we began this week as we formed into a little group and started emailing, you guys were emailing a lot about hashtag Me Too, which is sort of the latest iteration of the Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse scandal. And, you know, it can be a real mistake to look at one thing through the lens of another thing uh, that may or may not be connected. But I couldn't help it watching this movie. I thought, here's this movie that's really kind of at least it's it sees itself clearly. It regards itself as a movie about female empowerment, like sort of men suck and and you you know ultimately you have to save yourself and and so how are you going to do this and what are you going to do with your life uh, if you get through something like this um, but I mean the notion that it's a kind of really attractive woman in a kind of sexy nighty whatever that thing was kind of filmy garment she's uh, naked in the book you know, she's naked in the book oh, um, wow. shackled to a bed for however long this movie was you know <laughs> Too long. I mean this yeah. is like Harvey Weinstein's idea of a story about female empowerment. Like, you know, you could probably get there some other way, don't you think? Yeah, I could. I, I also could not help but think about Harvey Weinstein, uh, which I really, I never want to think about Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> but I've been forced to lately as I was watching this, uh, just because obviously, right, that's a coincidence just because of the timing of all of this. And, 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 and I would say that I do think the intentions um, behind it were feminist broadly imagined right in terms of all of those issues and it was it was trying to make a statement um i i think about that especially as as we see you know how she kind of recreates herself after um well spoiler she escapes from this uh, <laughs> um but um but again um i i I just don't I just don't think it did that in any particularly artful way and there were those elements of it just becoming kind of like this um this sexy spectacle when when it first opened I couldn't help but think about 50 shades of gray yes. you know and the focusing in on the manacles and to me that almost seemed very deliberate as well and that you could get people to watch it by making them think that it was some type of um 50 shades of gray's type story but then putting her on display like that and um you know, I know it's it, the sexualization of fear is a big part of horror films um, in general, or even fairy tales. Um, but um, the way it did it, I do think, 
it, it just it just never really kind of successfully pulls that off. We yeah. should say even the whatever the equivalent of the movie poster is that you see like on your video screen to tell you that the Gerald's game is coming up shows a woman handcuffed to a bed. I mean, I mean they're selling this thing as a movie about a woman handcuffed to a bed. That that never really does stop. But see, you know, I mean, to me, I, okay, I was really bothered by this, and and of course I'm sitting there watching all this with my presumably male gaze, and I'm like I don't want to be presumably. involved. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, I would like to look at Carla Gugino under certain circumstances, not these circumstances. On the other hand, if this were a movie about, I don't know, Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen trying to get out of some horrible situation where they're handcuffed and, you know, I mean, nobody, I wouldn't maybe have a problem with it. So am I, am I taking away from women the ability to have a really good escape adventure story because I'm kind of offended by a woman being put in that position? Well, are you offended? You're offended by I was by offended her by this movie. Posi- yeah, on her behalf, on the woman's behalf, or how are you offended? I, I thought it was torture porn. I thought I was just watching this thing where I was being invited to watch this woman who's in this, you know, nighty, you know, struggling, <laughs> struggling to against handcuffs for like a really long period of time. Yeah. So I was uh, first of all, I didn't want to watch that, but I, I thought there was something fundamentally offensive about it too. I really thought it was voyeuristic as opposed to being. I mean, I, I, you know, it sounds like the book isn't like that, but th- I, that's yeah. what I thought this movie was. I, yeah, I have to, I have to completely agree with that. Um, but it was because she didn't, you know. I thought it was interesting, Colin, that you said, you know, it could have been about female empowerment, men suck, and all that, you know. But that isn't female empowerment to no. say like, oh, you know, these poor women are the victims of these horrible men, you know, and let them let them try to escape from it, and then if they're alone, then they're going to be better off because they'll be power, they'll be powerful, you know. I don't see that as a feminist vision at all or or a vision of female empowerment. You know, it would have been a much more interesting movie if he had had if they had had if if he hadn't if they had had more of an interaction, you know, mm-hmm. like have a conversation and she had had more power. But I mean, you know, you're if you're if you're handcuffed to a bed and there's nothing you can do, how could you possibly be empowered? You know, you're sort of so but maybe that's why they don't make movies about Dustin Hoffman being ha- handcuffed to a bed with nothing well, that was to pa- do. That was Papillon, actually. I guess Oh, he but okay. <laughs> well, I guess the empowerment's supposed to come from the fact that she didn't give up, you know, and that and that she found like this inner strength. I I saw the, you know, these these manifestations as like like, you know, is this her id or her super ego yeah. that's, you know, kind of coming out yeah. to spur her on? And she mm-hmm. did find this inner strength. There yeah, is, you know, there there was that James Franco movie um, about well, yeah. the, the hiker, right. you know, who gets trapped oh, and and one. has to, you know, literally saw off his own arm right. to escape. And, I, and there's... I there's thought a, about that movie. If th- you there's a parallel movie. here. Yeah. And, and that was supposed to be kind of like a story about... The the, the 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 human triumph like and that's so much of Hollywood so many it's such a male films it would have benefited from a female yeah. director yeah, I'll exactly. say that if we'd had a woman in the helm I think this would have been a yeah. different film especially well I think that is true actually mm-hmm. Stephen yeah. King's book is not as because I hate this whole idea that women have to be put in like a physically degrading situation to gain their empowerment yeah. like why mm-hmm. does it always have to be so bodily and based in in you know real physical suffering and that's the metaphor for you free yourself from your metaphorical shackles of your mind i mean i thought that was a little derivative and silly but in the book you know she's first of all not in a sexy nighty she's naked she's feeling very vulnerable like that she goes to the bathroom all these things that we edit out so it maintains this idea that carla gugino even when she's you know bleeding and and starving and thirsty is still hot like she still yeah. appears in a in a sexually charged way which is completely absent from the book i mean by the end of the book the image i had of this woman was harrowed and 
you know, covered in her own bodily mess. I mean, that was so much more visceral and real and worked so much better than this idea that, oh, you know, she still looks pretty cute and she's going to drive in her car and still look kind of hot. And the other benefit, I think, of the voices in the book was that they were all female voices. Mm -hmm. So one of the primary voices is her college friend, Ruth, who was this strong feminist that tried to encourage her to talk about some of the past traumas she's had. And the letter, she writes a letter at the end of the of the movie, and that letter's actually addressed to the college friend and kind of apologizing for shutting her down and opening up this invitation for them to rekindle their friendship. And it becomes about strong females building each other up. And that was really absent, I thought, in the conclusion of the film. Yeah. We should mention that uh, this uh, film also features as kind of a disturbing apparition, apparition, this huge hulking uh, death-like figure who somebody here figured out was the person who played Lurch in the last iteration of the Addams Family. Um, so there's that to look forward to. Um, <laughs> all right. So we don't uh, recommend it. I, I, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe I should just save this for the recommendations. But I, I, I'll be interested to hear you guys just very quickly talk about, like I was sort of thinking about this afterwards, like what's my idea of a movie that maybe does this in a less... I think Bill's right. There's something just so ham-fisted about its attempts to be <laughs> to be something other than what it really is. You know, and I even think of like Amy Adams. I think is piling up some roles where she arrival, she, yeah, arrival in particular. Yeah. She yeah. plays this strong, interesting woman who has a source of tremendous sorrow inside her too. You know, but, but who doesn't flinch from anything? You know, she just goes in and. I would be surprised if Gerald's going to pass the Bechdel test, even though it's a woman talking to herself the entire time. Yeah, I mean, my wife brought that up when we were talking about that. That's interesting, but it's yeah. a single character in a room, and you're still having relationships, conversations that are really only grounded in her relationships with men. And in the book they play up, again, I keep harking back to this, her relationship with her mother is more prominent, and her mother's you know, being complicit in a lot of the stuff she suffered. That was interesting to me, and it was less gendered. This felt very much like this is a a woman who's going to free herself from these shackles of all the toxic men that have harassed her over her life. I mean, I don't know. I can't think of a movie off the top of my head besides right. maybe some Amy Adams stuff that is successful in that. I, I Am Love, Tilda Swinton. Oh, oh my God. I just okay. love that movie so much. She's amazing. She, just, has, yeah. she has shackles of a, social, of a different sort, and um, it's kind of about a kind of escape, but it's completely different from... She's a dream. <laughs> this. All right. Um... Did you have one? Or do yeah, you I just saw Battle of the Sexes, which yeah. I really would recommend. And, you know, of course, Billie Jean King yeah. had her own shackles um, beyond what happened on the court. And I, I thought it I thought it did a good job with that. My, my contribution will be uh, 20th Century Women, which I saw last night. Uh, this is Mike Mills' second movie about one of his parents. He doesn't have any more parents to make movies out of. He <laughs> also made Beginners about his father. Um, it's Annette Benning, But it's really three women uh, played by, by Elle Fanning, uh, Greta Gerwig and Annette Bening, three women of different ages in 1979 in coastal California, really kind of talking about some of those questions about, you know, what 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 is feminism, but doing it in a really entertaining way, uh, all in the company of a 15-year-old boy and uh, a kind of manly uh, carpenter mechanic kind of guy played by Billy Crudup. Uh, it's a terrific movie and it's very entertaining but also explores a lot of interesting questions about what it, you know what feminism is and what it really means to be a woman triumphing over her circumstances without ever getting very didactic. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We're going to recommend other stuff after that.
I could just get out of these handcuffs. I could do the credits. Kai, come on, Mr. Rizdahl, this isn't funny anymore. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish would have helped, but she's all tied up. Part of Lurch was played by Bill Curry. On Monday's show, we debrief our reporting team freshly returned from Puerto Rico. And now, back to Colin. Here we are. We're back. We like to recommend things to you at the end of the show. We already just did recommend a whole bunch of things, and I am, in fact, dying to see Battle of the Sexes. But Irene Papoulos, what do you have to recommend? I have, um, first of all, a um, like I've just been feeling really sluggish lately, and I don't know what's going on. And so somebody said, "Why don't you stop?" So you're going to recommend cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you stop eating animal products for just for two weeks? So I stopped about a, a, a week and a half ago, and it's really makes some kind of internal change and difference. Even if you're not going to completely become a vegan, to do it temporarily is I highly recommend it. And I also recommend um, Jane Meyer's interview of. Uh, p- a profile of oh, Pence stealing, in the New Yorker. In the New Yorker. It's so interesting. So interesting to hear about him. Um, all right. I'll so, um, and actually, you stole from both people because Rebecca, of course, you know, radically changed her diet when she felt sluggish. Really? But anyway, uh, we'll go to Bill Usman next. So, uh, my oldest daughter loves that you've just said stop eating animals. She gives you two thumbs up. Um, I also was going to pick uh, the Jane Meyer. Um, it's uh, her piece in this week's New Yorker uh, called "The President Pence Delusion." And um, it's a it's a investigation of how he really is. Uh, in addition to his, you know, evangelical Christianity, his anti-gay stance, his anti-woman policies, he's also the voice of the Koch brothers inside the Trump administration. And um, you know, just 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 the title of the of of the piece alone, the President Pence delusion. It she really lays out how. We cannot rely on impeachment or the 25th Amendment as somehow the solution of getting us out of this nightmare that we're in because what might be at the other end of that would also be a nightmare. And in general, I can recommend uh, Jane Meyer um, just – Across the board, everything she does is crucial and important. And there's right. great, great details in there too about you know his mother and about his father beating him. Now, do you mean his real mother or his wife that he calls mother? His real mother, <laughs> and it helps you understand why he calls his wife mother okay. after you meet his yeah. real mother who's still alive. A and, lot of the article is actually Mike Pence chained to a bed and all these different people <laughs> from the past are talking to him. Kind but, of, yeah. yeah. But actually, I, it's funny that you're doing this. We're going to get to Rebecca in just a second, but because one, one of my um, uh, ideas for recommendation, which I had last week, but then I didn't do it, so I carried it over to this week, was, and it seems kind of stupid, but just the New Yorker. And, and what I mean by this is that, you know, the physical New Yorker, if you get it, um, you know, and it sits in your house and it piles up and it's reproachfully looking at you from its <laughs> stack of New Yorkers. But you, when you get to it, you wind up reading about stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have picked out. They picked it out for you. It's almost inevitably reported at a level and with a depth and, a, and narrated with a kind of artful that you just don't see much of anywhere else. They really still are head and shoulders just about anybody above anybody else you can think of at what they do. And I feel as though, you know, when I do get to that pile and, you know, read five or six articles, my understanding of reality gets a lot sharper in just the way that Bill was describing right. about the Jane Mayer article. Uh, and so Tillerson, I, Tillerson played the drums in a marching band, the, you know, the, the Tillerson article. Uh, the Tillerson article in particular is about three or four issues yeah. ago. It's the red and black cover one. That's yeah. how I think of it. The 
The New Yorker um, is part of the solution to what we were talking about right. in the first segment. Yeah. And what they do with the New Yorker Radio Hour, too, where they've actually almost overnight been able to translate a lot of their ethos into this very difficult medium of radio also is enviable. I mean, David Remnick is like this guy who also, he's like a kind of journalist who almost hasn't ever existed before. I mean, if you think all the things that Remnick does and, and the people who want to talk to Remnick, you know what I mean, where he can say without almost affectation, well, I talked to Barack Obama three weeks after the election. He said, you know, and it doesn't even seem like he's name dropping. It's probably Barack Obama probably called him, you know. So anyway, New Yorker is uh, part of my recommendations. But Rebecca Castellani, what are you going to recommend? So to redeem Stephen King a little bit, um, I highly recommend his very short autobiographical book called On Writing. Um, yes. It functions both as a yes, yes. wonderful exemplar of how one goes about a professional career in writing, but also is functions as sort of an autobiography. Autobiograph- can never I get to the endorsements and I can't speak. <laughs> Autobiography of his writing career. You know, he talks about the first time his book was picked up and those feelings and his struggles with it. So I would really recommend that. It's really short. You can read it in an afternoon if you're interested in writing or just interested in Stephen King. It's a really wonderful insight into his process. Um, my second endorsement is if you're like me and you're overwhelmed by everything in the internet, everything that you you intake. Tonight, and I think tomorrow night, is the Orionid Meteor Shower. So mm. if you're interested in going out and going retreating into the cosmos, now is a nice night to do it because it'll be clear, and I think you'll see some really cool meteors. Leave your phone at home. Yes, unless you've got that very cool, which is actually an endorsement of itself, the Night Sky app that identifies, based on your GPS, the constellations around you and shows you know if a satellite goes by, what satellite it is, where certain things are happening, and that's free. So if you're... Looking at the sky and you can't figure out what you're supposed to be looking at, download that. <laughs> There's an app for that. Um, all right. So, yes, I will say that I interviewed uh, Stephen King on stage at the Bushnell a few years ago, and the on writing book was. It was the most useful thing for me in terms of preparation. I mean, it's not only great preparation for all the things that you described. It's great preparation for Stephen King, too. You really get to know him through that book in a way that I don't think we've ever gotten to know him before. So uh, it's really kind of a memoir that's couched as a, a book about writing. Um, so I, I'm also feeling like people are overwhelmed and they also might need to laugh. Um, and I always feel like that the movie Bowfinger should be one of the top ten comedies on everybody's top ten comedy list. But I'm just always amazed by the number of people who haven't seen this movie, including Kurt Anderson yesterday, uh, Jonathan McNichol, who seems to see every comedy movie. Uh, it's um, a terrific movie. Uh, I guess I can really Bowfinger? S- Bowf- I've never heard of it. Bowfinger. Bowfinger. So uh, it stars uh, Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. Steve Martin plays an unscrupulous, down-on-his-luck movie director uh, who, who is working with a very kind of dilapidated crew and, and no money whatsoever. Um, Eddie, Murphy, Eddie Murphy plays two roles. He plays a, an action star named Kit Ramsey who is unbelievably paranoid and has joined a Scientology-like movement called Mindhead. It's just clearly Scientology. Um, uh, he also has a twin brother brother who looks a lot like him but has wears braces and is nothing like him is this very kind of nervous retiring guy and Steve Martin decides that he can what he can do is make a Kit Ramsey movie without ever telling Kit Ramsey that he's doing it so he and his crew pop up in all kinds of locations and stage these action scenes without Eddie Murphy's cooperation which of course makes him more paranoid more paranoid more frightened it's a brilliantly written movie Eddie Murphy is this Eddie Murphy is a great comic actor this is the best you'll ever see him I don't know why people don't know about this movie, but Bowfinger. If you don't laugh, well, contact me. I'll send you a quarter or something. I don't know. You, you have my personal guarantee. 